I grew up in the late 1960s and 1970s, and so the soundtrack of my teen years was protest music. Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, those, of course, were the elder statesmen, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Phil Oakes, who I still miss, the Jefferson Airplane. These were the people who produced the songs that produced my consciousness. They were also the songs that shaped my sense of America. Many of them were angry, but even more of them were hopeful. They were aspirational. They sang to us of an America that could be, an America that we could create if we only wanted to and if we only tried. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. As I watch what has been unfolding in the state of Israel, the 5% of the Israeli population that is taken to the streets of the Jewish state in protest over the proposed changes that would radically diminish the power of the judiciary, thus threatening the only thing that Israel has that represents a true balance of powers. I watch those scenes of those crowds in the streets, and it brings me back to those heady days of 1969, 1970, when my American peers and I protested the Vietnam War and racism and any number of things, I feel this intense kinship with the throngs in the streets of Israel, not least of which is because I agree with them. Israel and the Zionist project are in danger. And so in this podcast, we're going to be talking about Israeli protest music. We're going to understand some of the composers, the singers, the words, the messages. For more than a half century Israelis have questioned elements of Israel's direction, and today it's all about the music. And our guest, Yossi Klein Halevi, one of Israel's most prolific and profound writers and journalists, an author of many books, including Like Dreamers, which was about the generation of soldiers who fought in the 1967 Six-Day War and how they helped shape Israeli society. A fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute, where he is the co-director with Imam Abdullah and Tepli of the Muslim Leadership Institute. One of the most significant voices in the Jewish world today, a voice of balance and reason, a voice that invariably comes from the center, which is not an easy place to do. And I am proud to say, Yossi's a good friend of mine, a man whom I call my brother, to the extent that when I have to describe my politics around Israel and the Jewish people, I call myself a Yossi Klein Halivite. And like me, Yossi loves popular music. That's actually one of the things that we bonded over when we first became friends. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. So join us for this party as we talk about the best of Israeli protests. Now, I should tell you two things. Number one, for legal reasons, friends, we can't put the music into the podcast. I know that's a total buzzkill. Don't worry. You're going to go to Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred, which is the blog. And you're going to have a text of much of this conversation and you're going to have the lyrics 
as much of the lyrics as we can do, and you're gonna have links to the YouTube videos. And number two, I should also tell you, 11 days ago, Yossi Klein Halevi became a grandpa. So mazel tov, Yossi. Well, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, brother. It is so good to have you. And look, it's good to have you because number one, you're busy with this wonderful moment in the life of your family, and you're busy with what's going on in Israel. So before we get to the music, let's just cover some bases here. Tell us, and for those of you who may already know you, remind us, you and I are basically the same age. We're within a couple yeah. of years of each other. Yeah. We grew up in the same kind of geography. You grew up in Brooklyn, I grew up on Long Island. A different kind of sociology. Tell us about your childhood. How did it start? Well, we grew up in geographical proximity, but the the psychic measure, <laughs> the distance between where I grew up, uh, which was Borough Park, uh, and where you grew up on Long Island, was we might as well have been in two separate continents. Uh, Borough Park uh, is still the the largest ultra orthodox community uh, in in the U.S. one of the largest in the world. Uh, I grew up there uh, when it was transitioning from a, a normative orthodox community into an ultra orthodox community, and, and we were mostly Holocaust survivor families in those years, uh, as was my my family, and. It was really an experience of being a double outsider. We were we were an immigrant family, and we were a survivor family, and uh, and that really put us at a at a great distance from America. Uh, but what you and I really have in common from those years uh, was the music, and uh, the music served for me a an, an additional function. It was my acculturation into America. Uh, I really became an American through rock and roll and uh, through the protest music, but also through the psychedelic music of the 60s, the San Francisco music. And, and that's what spoke to me and shaped me. It shaped me as an American. And um, it also partly shaped me as a Jew. It, it, it opened me. It, it, it forced me out of Borough Park into, uh, into the big world. It's really interesting because for me, my Jewish identity as it grew up as a suburban kid growing up in a synagogue called Suburban Temple on Long Island was inevitably fueled by the music of that uh, of that protest movement. I can't really pull those two things apart. It's interesting how that bonded us. And was that true of many people that you grew up with? Was that music alive in the streets for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All of my friends, we spent our youth, well, I won't say, I won't, I won't say everything that we did in our youth, but we certainly really focused uh, on the music. That was our bond. And that's what separated us very much from, from the community. You know, we were, we were connecting with, with the wider culture and while growing up in a community whose um, whose mission was to protect its children from the wider culture. You know, I first met you cinematically many years ago. I can actually locate exactly when it was in time and in space through the movie that I think was just recently re-released, which is Kaddish. Yes, yes. It's, um, we, we finally digitalized it 
after all these years. The film uh, was first released in 1985, and uh, and it's just been re-released, and uh, we're we're we've put it back out on uh, on the market, and it's. It's very exciting to see to see the film coming back after all these years. A poignant film about your childhood and about your father, and it's it's so tender and loving. And you and I had something else in common. Yours, of course, much longer, and it's the subject of your memoir. But a flirtation with, a fascination with, a weird kind of attraction to Rabbi Meir Kahana and the Jewish Defense League. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that happened in the late 1960s. The attraction that I had to Mayor Kahana was was an expression of uh, the connection that I felt to the politics of the 60s. Now today that sounds counterintuitive because of course Mayor Kahana went on to become the head of the far right in Israel, but in the 1960s, he was presenting himself as a kind of Jewish version of the Black Panthers. His message was Jewish pride, Jewish is beautiful, which he, a slogan he borrowed from Black is beautiful, the slogan of the 60s. And so he was playing on the 60s in a manipulative way, of course. But when you're 16, 17, you're not so uh, alert to the nuance. And the other piece of this is that Kahana in those years was was focusing on the campaign to save the Jews of the Soviet Union, to protect vulnerable Jews left behind in in changing urban neighborhoods. And so Kahana was really uh, presenting himself as the defender of helpless Jews. Uh, Of course, when he made the shift to Israeli politics, uh, he became the voice of racism and oppression. But that was a very different Kahana than we knew, uh, or at least that we thought we knew in Brooklyn. Today, in retrospect, I see a very strong link between the American phase of Kahana's political career and his Israeli phase. Both were informed by a love of violence. Both were formed by the sense, the moral distortion that ends justify means And so today, I give myself much less of a pass than I once did. But it's it's not how it looked in those years. Well, we were so much older then. We're younger than that now. (laughs) So let me ask you, let's before we get to the music, you mentioned Kahana. We have Kahanists now in the Israeli government, which would have been unthinkable a while ago. Unthinkable. We're recording this right before Passover, several days before Passover. Uh, Friends are going to be hearing it several weeks later, so anything can happen. What's your sense of what's going on right now in the streets, and what are you hearing from your friends, and what's your anguish meter? My anguish meter uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 is about 11 between 11 and 12. This one goes to 11, to quote Spinal Tap. Yeah, that's right. And uh, right now we're in a pause. We've won a tactical victory, no more than that. The government has been forced to temporarily retreat, but uh, no one I know trusts Netanyahu, and uh, the expectation is that we're all going to be back out on the streets once these negotiations between the government and the opposition over judicial reform fail, as I believe they inevitably must because we're not negotiating with partners in good faith. We're negotiating with a government that's a combination 
of political extremists, religious fundamentalists, and scoundrels, corrupt politicians. That's quite a martini mix there. That's a bad haroset. <laughs> That's a bad That's a bitter haroset. <laughs> hey, let me ask you something. Something I've been thinking about. You, you and I, again, we are graduates of the protest movement in America in the late 1960s. What's the difference between the tenor and the tone and the substance of the protests that we're seeing in the streets of Israel and the kind of protests that we once had once upon a time coming from the American left. What's your, what's your sense of that? I have my own sense of it, but I want to hear yours. An extraordinary difference. The demonstrations in Israel are an embrace of the country. They're an embrace of the ethos, the founding ethos of the state. We're fighting to protect the state of Israel, to protect Zionism. Uh, nobody's burning Israeli flags on the streets of Tel Aviv. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. If you look at the images coming out of the demonstrations, there's a sea of blue and white flags. This is a love song. This is a, this is a patriotic uprising. And it's so interesting. It's a liberal patriotism. And when I think about the hatred and rage and contempt for America often spelled with three Ks in the 1960s, uh, the difference between what's happening in Israel now and what happened in America then, they're simply two opposing sensibilities. And I'm so proud of Israel for this moment. I'm so proud of Israelis for not yielding the flag to the ultra-right as I think has happened in America, which is one of the, the disasters for your political discourse. You know, in Israel, the flag belongs to all of us, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. And, and that still makes us a somewhat healthy society. We're nowhere near as healthy as we were four months ago. We're now in, in some ways a sick society, but in other ways, the fact that, we, that we're all expressing love for the country gives us some hope for restoring a minimal sense of, uh, of shared purpose. We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. And we're back with Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. With us, our good friend, the journalist, public intellectual, one of the great figures of the Jewish world, Yossi Klein Halevi, who just became a grandpa. So let's talk music. You and I bonded over a love of Israeli music and Israeli protest music. I want to go first to 
Jerusalem of Iron, Yerushalayim Shel Barzel by Meir Arieli. Mikol Margemot Avravino, Veshachar Kambit Om, Burak Allah Odlohil Binhu, Uchvarhaya Adam. In your darkness, Jerusalem, we found a loving heart when we came to widen your borders and to overwhelm the enemy. We became satiated of all his mortars, and suddenly dawn broke. It just arose, not even yet white, and it was already red. And the chorus, Jerusalem of iron, of lead, of darkness. Haven't we set your wall free? Talk to me about Meir Ariel. Who was he? What is his significance in the larger narrative of Israeli history? By the way, I am rereading Like Dreamers. I got to tell you that. That's great. In preparation for this conversation, it, it is such a great piece of work. Who was he? Mayor Ariel, who is one of the the main characters in Like Dreamers, is someone who I revere. I feel that I know intimately, even though I never met him. He died in 1999, and I began Like Dreamers just a couple of years later. And Mayor, and I, I, I have that sense of 1960s intimacy with our music heroes. We're on a first-name basis, Mayor and I. Mayer, I think, was our greatest composer, singer, troubadour of the uh, post-1967 generation. Mayer transformed Israeli music. He brought into Israeli music topics that were, were almost always kept out. Israelis love their music as a reflection of the best side of their collective nature. We like to see our music as as celebrating Israeliness. And even when we protest, even when the music reflects protest, it tends to do so almost reluctantly. And Mayer forced Israeli music to deal with the, the harsher sides of Israeli reality. As far as I know, he was the first to bring in the conflict over the land and acknowledge a Palestinian perspective along with a Zionist perspective because Mayer was a very deep Zionist. But he was keenly attentive to alternative voices. He had a great line once. He said that Israeli blues is the meeting point between Yiddish and Arabic, which I think is a very profound insight. Uh, it's the meeting point between the, the suffering of the exile and the conflict and the traumas and the dislocation that uh, the Jewish return home inadvertently and unintentionally created for our neighbors. Which, of course, is the topic of your spectacular book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Well, thank you. And I would say Mayer was one of my inspirations to take seriously the pain of our neighbors. One of his great songs is Shir Ke'ev, Song of Pain, where he talks about the pain of the Palestinians. And he does so in this very tender, 
almost satirical way, but it really is a cry of pain. So Mayer, for me, is the guy who forced Israel to look at itself in a, in a deeper way. Mayer is the first one that I know of who, who introduced homosexuality into, into Israeli music, who brought in uh, drugs, who wrote about the collapse of idealism on the socialist uh, communal kibbutz. Mayer was a crucial reflection and shaper of Israel as we transitioned from the pioneering socialist ethos of before the Six-Day War, before 1967, to afterwards. And in that connection, connection of the Six-Day War, Mayer was a soldier in Jerusalem. He was a paratrooper, which is why he's, he's included in, in Like Dreamers, which is the story of seven paratroopers who, who fought in Jerusalem. And Mayer rose to prominence uh, as a result of the song that you just read, uh, Jerusalem of Iron, which is a response to the beloved Israeli hymn, Jerusalem of Gold, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. And Yerushalayim Shel Zahav came out just before the Six-Day War, and it's a love song to Jerusalem. And Mayer felt the song, in light of the battle that he had just experienced in Jerusalem, Jerusalem of Gold was too sweet. And so he wrote a song in the pause between battles. He was sitting in the Rockefeller Museum in East Jerusalem where the paratroopers were taking a break before entering the old city. And he wrote Yerushalayim Shel Barzel, Jerusalem of Iron, in the pause between battles. And that song became the, the counter anthem of the paratroopers, counter to Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. Uh, Mayer actually hated that song. He hated, he hated the fact that he rose to prominence uh, as a result of a, of a song whose melody he didn't write. He used the melody of Jerusalem of Gold to sing Jerusalem of Iron. Uh, and he did everything he could later on to disavow that song. But I see it as the first great Israeli protest song. What I love about the song musically is that Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, written by Naomi Shemer, the melody that Meir uses. You notice this, of course, that it almost seamlessly moves between a minor key and a major key. Hmm. Yeah. Like Jewish history itself, right? Yeah, yeah. You go from minor to major, to mournful to triumphant, yes? Yeah, and it's so interesting you're saying that because so much of Israeli rock music is happening in minor key. It sounds so Jewish. It sounds Hasidic yes. and Russian. And it's so interesting because uh, I don't know if there's another rock music out there anywhere in any culture that's happening uh, so heavily in minor key. And I think that that's an expression of the a certain tenderness and a certain melancholy sensibility that suffuses uh, Israeli music from its pre-state Zionist origins until today. Uh, one last point, though, Rabbi, about Jerusalem of Iron. Look at the lyrics at the end. The king's army dispersed, the sniper, his tower is silent. Now it is possible to go to the Dead Sea by way of Jericho. 
Now it is possible to go to the sanctuary mountain, the Har Habayit, and to the western wall. Here you are in the twilight, almost all of you gold. Jerusalem of gold and lead and dreams will forever be peace between your walls. Look what he's doing here. This is Israel's first protest song. He's protesting against the tendency in Israeli music and Israeli society to prettify, to avoid looking at, at, at the hard realities. And yet he can't resist himself ending with Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And that's, that's the prophetic impulse in Meir that even when you chastise, you comfort. And, and, and that recurs in his other protest music. And the sense of love, love for Israel, love for the story, love for Jerusalem. He's just attacked Nomi Shemer and her iconic song. And at the end of the song, he embraces Jerusalem of gold. I've been wanting to ask you this. What did Naomi Shemer think of his version? Oh, she hated it. <laughs> she, and she, she threatened to sue him. Now, now, you have to understand, Nomi Shemer and Mayor Ariel were two kibbutzniks. Mayor was still living on kibbutz. He ended up uh, in Tel Aviv, where Nomi Shemer ended up. But Nomi Shemer grew up in a kibbutz. She grew up in one of the seminal kibbutzim, Kvutzat Kineret, one of the legendary kibbutzim. And so you have one kibbutznik threatening to sue another. How American. How American. Yeah. But Nomi Shemer realized that that would not fly in the Israel of the 1960s. So instead, a mutual friend arranged a sulcha. They got together in a Tel Aviv restaurant. Nomi Shemer paid because she wasn't a kibbutznik anymore. Mayor had no money to eat in a Tel Aviv restaurant. And so he agreed that whatever uh, proceeds uh, he would get, he would share with her. And that, that was the easy part because none of those proceeds went to Mayor personally. They all went to the kibbutz. <laughs> so, so, so for him to give up his share was, was really not a big sacrifice. But uh, they became friends. And of course they became friends because uh, he revered her. That was the irony here. He was attacking her, but uh, he considered her, almost every Israeli musician does, as a kind of spiritual mother of modern Israeli music and as the great composer of the generation immediately uh, following Israeli independence in 1948. She was the, the grandmother of modern Israeli music, and I think of Meir as one of the fathers. We can't leave Meir Ariel without talking about a song, again, that you introduced me to several years ago, Midrash Yonati, the Midrash about my dog. <laughs> Inquire after the heart of Jerusalem, ask how she fares. Stones in the heart of Jerusalem, the marketplace teems, clothed in deceit and injustice for the building of the wall. But from behind her veil, her nakedness is exposed. She doesn't seek justice, justice. She doesn't wish for peace, for there is no peace without justice. So why did we end up here? What was our dream? Will we soon awake 
What about Shemitah, according to Halakha, which is to say, what about the laws of letting the land lie fallow every seven years, according to Jewish law? Have you already mastered it, that you rush to take more and more and more land in dubious deceit, smacking of theft under cover of darkness with the immunity of rulers? This is redemption. This is honor. Like a thief in the Judean underground oh mama mama motherland my land admati mama mama admoti until my death wow what a what a piece of literature this is oh i have chills every time i hear that that's a beautiful english translation where did you find that found it online believe it or not i think it's pretty good if you could send it to me i'd really appreciate it or maybe it's yours no 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 i wish it was it's terrific i will send it to you Thank you. And Hebrew, of course, it's magnificent. But the amazing thing here, and I just our listeners need to know this, is the the cherry picking of this rock star that he does from traditional biblical texts. Yes, yes. This is a prophetic protest song. Well, what's it about? First of all, he wrote this in 1987. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. And... This is Mayer's religious disputation with the settlers, with the Israeli religious right. With the occupation. In some ways, it's even deeper than the occupation. It's certainly about the occupation, but Mayer here is saying, to whom does Judaism and Torah belong? Now, you have to understand, Mayer grew up totally secular, and in his early years as a, uh, as a singer, Um, represented the bohemian spirit in Israeli music. As he's growing as a musician, he's becoming increasingly religious, not just spiritually minded, but actually becoming an observant Jew. His wife, Tirza, told me how he used to sit for hours every morning wearing tefillin, phylacteries, and compose in tefillin. And Mayer became quite a learned Jew. He, he studied Talmud, he studied Kabbalah. And what you're seeing in this, in this song is the transition of Mayer the wise guy to Mayer the wise man. Mm. And what he's saying here is, I love Torah no less than you. Torah belongs to me as much as it does to you. How dare you desecrate the name of Judaism? And so, yes, it's a protest about the occupation, but what's really going on here is he's protesting against the desecration of Judaism. What's amazing to me, and I've I've seen this over the last, oh gosh, five to 10 summers, when I've come to study at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, which is my Jewish drug of choice, I should say, (laughs) where you and I hang out. What I've seen on the part of the secularists happening, for example, at the first station on Friday afternoon, happening at the port in Tel Aviv on Erev Shabbat, is that there has been a revolution on the part of so-called Israeli secularists, and I say so-called because I, I can't view these people as secular Jews, who are saying you, Haredim, don't own these texts. They are the yes. inheritance of the entire Jewish people. Yeah, one of the things that worries me about this moment in Israel, and especially this outrageous government, 
is that this government is speaking in the name of Judaism. Uh, not only in the name of Israel and the Jewish people. This is the most, quote, religious, unquote, government we've ever had. And one consequence of that, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm feeling it, is this rage against religion on the part of, of secularists who were open to incorporating elements of Judaism into their lives. The deep secular religious schism that defined Israel in its early years was beginning to heal. And, and the examples that you cited were part of a reclamation of Judaism among secular Israelis on their own terms, not becoming Orthodox Jews, but creating new forms of modern Israeli Judaism, which is exactly what we need in Israel. And so this moment feels to me like a very dangerous setback. What's the emotion that's connected to you? Is it embarrassment? Is it anger? Is it shame? Is it fear? What I feel? Yes, personally? please. Yeah. Look, I wear a kippah. And to be walking around the streets in Israel today with a kippah means that passersby assume, if they're Orthodox, they assume, well, you're one of us in supporting this government. Uh, and if they're secular, they assume you're part of the enemy camp. And I will say that the proudest moments that I've had wearing a kippah was being at the demonstrations and making that statement that just as Judaism doesn't only belong to the Orthodox, democracy doesn't only belong to the secularists. Mm. And this isn't your fight, this is our fight. I see people around me, secular Israelis, with this deep sense of gratitude, and, and that embarrasses me. They feel grateful that I'm there. People want to engage me in, in conversation, and they want to just let me know how happy they are. You know, thank you for being here. What do you mean, thank me? This is my country. This is my democracy. And, and that's an expression of how deep this schism is running. We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're back with Yossi Klein-Halevi. Welcome back to Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And we are really being shaken and stirred today. I want to go to a song that apparently, according to a wide poll, is the greatest Israeli rock song ever written. And the song is called Mechakim Mashiach, Waiting for the Messiah. And the artist is Shalom Hanoch. Shalom, 
Okay, so you turned me on to this song. The song basically is about this. It's about a group of businessmen who are sitting around waiting for a guy named Mashiach, a businessman who's going to bring them this incredible deal that's going to make them rich. And the deal falls through. This guy, Mashiach, he jumps off the roof. He kills himself, and everyone is in a state of depression emotionally and financially as well. Now, the joke is, the joke is that Mashiach, the Mashiach that they're waiting for is not the Messiah, but Mashiach is, by the way, a very common Sephardi, Mizrahi, Yemenite name. He's a Yemenite businessman. And so they're waiting for the Mashiach. And the chorus is, the Messiah isn't coming. Mashiach loba. The Messiah isn't coming. Mashiach isn't coming. And he's not, he's not even telephoning either. So tell us about the song and why is this the greatest Israeli rock song ever written? By the way, I think that the opening bars of the song are, oh, I hate to use, they're oh. like iconic, right? Oh, oh it's, it's transcendent. <laughs> it's ultimate rock, ultimate rock. This is the Israeli version <laughs> of Stairway to Heaven, right? Oh, oh absolutely, absolutely. Which is also in a minor key. Yeah, that's that's true. I hear that opening jolt of Mechakim the Mashiach, and I'm galvanized. I'm immediately, uh, you know, I can't I can't think of anything else. I can't do anything else. I'm sitting in that room with those businessmen. But before we unpack that, let me just say one thing about Shalom Chanoch. Shalom Chanoch is also one of the handful of people who invented Israeli rock music. Meir, Shalom, uh, Arik Einstein, um, Danny Sanderson. We've almost exhausted the list. And what is so extraordinary about Shalom Chanoch is that he grew up on the same kibbutz as Meir Ariel, uh, kibbutz Mishmarot, which had all of 100 families. It was one of the smallest kibbutzim. The two of them uh, are separated by about four years. They were inseparable growing up. They immediately bonded despite the age difference, which is significant when you're a teenager. You know, uh, Shalom was 12, Mayor was 16, but the two of them were already composing astonishing music. And for me, for me, for me Rabbi, one of the proofs of the existence of God is the fact that Meir Ariel and Shalom Chanoch grew up as neighbors in the same little forlorn kibbutz, and that these two would, would influence each other in their formative years and then go on to transform Israeli music. This song came out in 1984-85, which was one of the low points in Israeli history. Uh, inflation was running at 500%. And for those of you who have not lived through triple digit inflation, there's no way to explain that experience, uh, except uh, to use the metaphor uh, of an earthquake, because there's no solidity. The ground you're standing on isn't solid. You get a paycheck, you have to rush and spend it immediately, because the next day it's already significantly depreciated. And at the same time, Israel is transitioning fitfully, unsuccessfully in the early 80s 
to capitalism. We've lost our socialist kibbutz ideals, which is what Shalom Chanoch grew up on, and we've replaced it for this kind of outlaw capitalism that's not working yet. It does start to work in the 1990s when Israel becomes startup miracle. But in the 80s, it is not working. So we have the worst of both. We have the, the capitalist corruption and the loss of kibbutz ideals without having the success of consumerism. And so here, Shalom Chanoch, the kibbutznik, even though he is not a kibbutznik anymore, and actually repudiated collectivism. There is no more individualistic voice in Israeli music than Shalom Chanoch. He wrote a song once, which is also a protest song, Don't Call Me a People, Al Tikrali Am. I'm not a people, I'm, I'm an individual. And so that's, in some ways, that's the ultimate Israeli protest song. And so Shalom is not a kibbutznik in his personality, but he is a kibbutznik in his values. Mm. This is a, a cry against the coarsening of the Israeli ethos, the end of, uh, of the pioneering Israel that Shalom himself rejected, <laughs> but which, which as, as pioneering Israel is finally fading away, here is a son of the kibbutz raising the, the stifled cry of the kibbutz founders. Amazing. It's an amazing song. I oh. never tire of, oh. of listening to it. The literary nature of the lyrics, it's, it's almost a movie, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And it's interesting you're saying about the, the, the literary quality of, of the lyrics because what you see running through Israeli music, and certainly it's, it's not true for all of Israeli music, but much of Israeli music is poetry. In fact, much of Israeli music is literally poetry. It's taking the works of the great Hebrew poets and putting it to music. In the case of the greatest of our composers, Meir and Shalom and, and uh, Naomi Shemer, uh, these are people who, who are poets and wonderful composers, and they bring those two skills together. That's what makes Israeli music so thrilling. It's so rich. So our final song is a song that was written by a great Israeli woman. It's always sung, it seems to me, every time I've heard it, by Israeli women singers. Ainli Eretz Acheret. I Have No Other Country. The lyrics by Ehud Manar. The music by Corinne Alal. Even if my land is aflame, just a word in Hebrew pierces my veins and my soul. With a painful body, with a hungry heart, here is my home. I will not stay silent because my country changed her face. I will not give up reminding her and singing in her ears. Wow. Really? Wow. Now, what makes this song so immediately emotionally overwhelming 
is this is what we're singing in the streets. Is this the anthem now? This is the anthem. This song is the anthem. This song, the symbol of the protest movement is the Israeli flag. The slogan of the protest movement is one word, busha, disgrace, shame, shame. And the anthem is Enli Eretz Acheret. Nancy Pelosi, of course, recently uh, made this song famous in America when she applied it to, uh, to your situation. What's interesting about all the songs that we've, we've been discussing here is that they're all old songs. They're all songs that were written 40 years ago, more. Ainli Eretz Acheret is a little more recent, maybe maybe 30 years. No, it's, it's the first Intifada. It's, it's, it's about 35 years ago. And what's so um, interesting about Israeli culture is continuity. Yes. The music accumulates. It doesn't disappear. My children know this music. It's accessible. It's a part of our intergenerational language. Uh, just as I listen to the new music, not all of it, but a lot of it, there's this cross-generational dialogue that's happening, which of course is very Jewish. You think of, of the Talmud and you think of the discourse over the centuries of, over Jewish law. Well, something similar in a much smaller period of time is happening uh, in the music. But what makes that interesting is that it's so counterintuitive to the contemporary sense of time, which is what's happening in the moment is what matters, and then it kind of fades away. Israeli music has the lasting power of the music of the 60s. And I think for the same reason, it's about something more than the moment. There's something um, transcendent about this music. What goes through my guts when I hear this now in this context I will not stay silent because my country has changed her face. I will not give up reminding her. I don't think we had anything like this in the late 60s and early 70s in American protest music. I think this land is your land. Of course, by Woody Guthrie, written decades before, that comes closest, but even that's more of a geographical hymn. This idea that it's my job to remind you of who you are. Yeah, yeah. And that I'm protesting to affirm your decency. To affirm your decency. Not to deny your decency. That's that's the big difference between what happened when we were growing up in America of the 60s and what's happening in Israel now. So we're approaching Pesach. We're coming to the end of our conversation. I guess the next time you and I will talk, we'll be over a cup of coffee in Jerusalem, God willing, yes? Inshallah. Inshallah, as we say. We're coming to Passover. It's the season of hope. What's giving you hope? The fact that we're out there in the streets, hundreds of thousands of Israelis every week, every week. And we'll go back out if and when these negotiations fail because we're fighting for everything we love. Israel is, is our parent, our child. It's so much more than just a nation state. Uh, it's 4,000 years of the Jewish story. And we're not going to let anyone take that away from us, whether it's, it's enemies from without or a corrupt prime minister.
we're in it for the long haul and this music is the way we pray in the streets. This is our prayer in the streets. I will not give up reminding her. This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This has been Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred the podcast. And I am so grateful to our friend who is, I don't want to falsely flatter you, Yossi, but you are in many ways a prophetic presence in the Jewish world, Yossi Klein Halevi. Thanks for being with us, Yossi. Well, I have to tell you, I've been shaken and stirred. <laughs> Thank you. I really have. And Rabbi, you know, you've You've given me a great gift. I've gotten so much out of this conversation, so thank you. As have we all. And so I invite all of you friends to follow my regular column, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Hey, listen. Martini Judaism is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Do us a favor. Do us a Pesach mitzvah, okay? Right after you finish buying all your Pesach food, just go on one of your search engines, download our podcast, give us a five-star rating. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Hey, listen, to all of our listeners, Passover will have passed. <laughs> By the time you listen to this, I hope it was a good one. To our, our Christian friends, I hope that you had a redemptive Easter. To our Muslim friends, we're probably still finishing up Ramadan. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, thanks for hanging out with us. Hey, Yossi, thanks again. And an early good Pesach and Mazel Tov, Zeta. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right, take care. Bye. <laughs>